Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Dharma study class. Today we're going to be looking at Majjhima Nikaya 152, the Indriya Bhavana Sutta, the development of the faculties. And the reason why I've chosen this uh, sutta to look at today is because uh, I, on Friday night, I was talking about Buddha Nusati and that one of the recollections we do is on the qualities of the Buddha. And I was illustrating some of those qualities uh, with a quite a well-known sutta that talks about the fact that the Buddha had has had eyes as we have eyes. The Buddha has had ears as we have ears. The Buddha has nose, tongue, touch, uh, smell, just all of the sense bases the same as we do. But uh, he was able to become enlightened. And in that particular sutta, the uh, teaching was to see that the thing that binds us to uh, the world is not the sense base or the sense objects but what is going on in the mind itself and uh, that the Buddha, his quality of uh, arahang is to be completely pure, completely free of those internal conflicts that give rise to uh, suffering, attachment and uh, ego conceit and so this sort of uh, helps us to look again at that and to also contemplate the work that we need to do to come to the same point as the Buddha. So I'd like to uh, begin by just saying uh, the Namo Tassa and then we'll move into the uh, study of the Sutta. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang damang sankhang namasami <coughs> So in the development of the faculties, Majjhimanikaya Sutta 152, we are looking at the faculties in terms of the sense bases and restraint of the sense bases, Indriya Sangwara, is the first part of this sutta and is part of the uh, gradual training that the Buddha taught to his disciples. And then we're going to go on to look at an even further development of that practice. So I'll begin by reading the sutta and uh, I will make comments as we go through. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Kajangala in the grove of the Mukula trees. Then the Brahmin student Uttara, a pupil of the Brahmin, Parasarya went to the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side. The Blessed One then asked him, 
Uttara, does the Brahman Parasarya teach his disciples the development of the faculties? He does, Master Gotama. But Uttara, how does he teach his disciples the development of the faculties? Here, Master Gotama, one does not see forms with the eye, one does not hear sounds with the ear. That is how the Brahman Parasarya teaches his disciples the development of the faculties. Now, just the fact that this is uh, someone who doesn't take the Buddha as his teacher is evident in the way that he addresses the Buddha. He calls him Master Gotama. And this is one of the ways in which the uh, disciples of other teachers or the Brahmins who consider themselves to be the uh, true uh, spiritual leaders of the community addressed the Buddha when they were talking to him rather than as uh, the enlightened one or the Lord or addressing him by the, uh, the, the title the Buddha. So he addresses him as Master Gotama and he says that his teacher... Teaches, teaches, teaches the development of the faculties in such a way that one does not see forms with the eye, one does not hear sounds with the ear. That is how the Brahman Parasarya teaches his disciples the development of the faculties. And the Buddha goes on to say, If that is so, Uttara, then a blind man and a deaf man will have developed faculties according to what the Brahman Parasarya says. For a blind man does not see forms with the eye and a deaf man does not hear sounds with the ear. When this was said, the Brahmin student Uttara, Parasarya's pupil, sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and without response. Then knowing this, the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Ananda. Ananda, the Brahman Parasarya, teaches his disciples the development of the faculties in one way, but in the nobles one, noble one's discipline, the supreme development of the faculties is otherwise. Now is the time, blessed one, now is the time, sublime one, for the blessed one to teach the supreme development of the faculties in the noble one's discipline. Having heard it from the blessed one, the bhikkhus will remember it. And so you can see the contrast between the way in which Venerable Ananda addresses the Buddha, the blessed one, the sublime one, compared to the Brahmin student who calls him Master Gotama, which is his, uh, his given name. So if we look at the uh, uh, note, which we've just passed, 1352 in the back, the expression, the development of the faculties, Indriya Bhavana, properly signifies the development of the mind in responding to the objects experienced through the sense faculties. The more rudimentary aspect of this practice, the restraint of the sense faculties, Indriya Sangwara, involves controlling the mind in such a way that one does not grasp at the signs and features of things, their distinctive, attractive and repulsive attributes. The development of the faculties carries this process of control through to the point where an act of will, one can immediately set up insight even in the course of sense perception. At the highest level, one acquires 
the ability to radically transform the subjective significance of perceptual objects themselves, making them appear in a mode that is very opposite of the way they are normally apprehended. So to begin with, we're looking at, as I said, the Indriya Sangwara, which is the restraint of the senses. This is the uh, first stage of this development of the faculties. And this is to do with how we attend to sense objects when we come in contact with objects in the environment. And this is part of the gradual training and uh, I'll go on to uh, explain that. Um, first of all, though, I'm going to just uh, give you a reminder of what is the traditional or the customary way in which restraint, restraint of the senses is um, expressed by the Buddha. And in terms of the gradual training, where it usually comes, it usually comes in a sequence of uh, training which is starts with virtue and whether it's a lay person keeping the five or the eight precepts or whether it's a monastic, a monk or a nun who's keeping the uh, ten precepts or ta taking the 227 rules of the monk or 311 rules of the uh, bhikkhuni that one uh, trains in virtue to comply with the rules the precepts that one has undertaken. And then the next step in training is usually restraint of the senses. What is this? Because you should train thus, we will guard the doors of our sense faculties. On seeing a form with the eye, we will not grasp at its signs and features. Since if we left the eye faculty unguarded, Evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. We will practice the way of its restraint. We will guard the eye faculty. We will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odour with the nose, on tasting a flavour with the tongue, on touching a tangible with the body, on cognising a mind object with the mind, we will not grasp at its signs and features. Since if we left the mind faculty unguarded, even un evil unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. We will practice the way of restraint. We will guard the mind faculty. We will undertake the restraint of the mind faculty. So this is the way that um, guarding the sense doors is uh, practiced. It is... Uh, in contrast to the way in which the Brahman teacher is saying that you see nothing, you hear nothing, you uh, are like a blind person or like a person who's uh, deaf, that it is impossible to be without sense contacts. And so when those sense contacts happen, they happen at the sense doors, which are the uh, sense bases which arise on the body, the eye door and the ear door, etc., come in contact with objects in the environment which are uh, appropriate for that uh, sense base. And at that time, when there is that contact taking place, there has to be both the uh, sense base, the sense object, and the 
right conditions. So there has to be enough light to see forms, for example. There has to be uh, not uh, a lot of noise going on in the background so you can hear a sound. And there also has to be attention paid to that uh, object. And only when those things are all there then does contact take place. And that gives rise then to the experience of the sense consciousness which brings us in contact with that object in the external environment and it produces an internal reaction. Now in guarding the sense doors, the way that we practice is, as has been said in this uh, explanation of restraint of the senses, on seeing a form with the eye or hearing a uh, sound with the ear or smelling an odour with the tongue, we will not grasp at its signs and features. So the contact takes place and one is aware that that object is present in the environment and one doesn't play around, if you like, with that object the uh, mindfulness needs to be established at the sense door so that one is aware that contact has taken place. There is the consciousness of that object, hearing consciousness or seeing consciousness, tasting consciousness, smelling consciousness, touching consciousness, or even the consciousness of an idea in the mind. And at that point, with mindfulness, one doesn't get further involved one doesn't delight in that object. One doesn't seek to find out more about that object. So in this uh, first stage of guarding the senses, the emphasis is on not going out further to play with that object. So the signs are the things that you uh, initially pick up to uh, know what that object is and the features are those uh, extra um, aspects of that which uh, give a, a more um, definite uh, elaborated uh, idea of what that object is. So for example you see the form of a person coming and that would be the sign. You see that that, that is a person and you may even pick up that it's a male or a female. But then the features are that you go and look at that person to see uh, who they are, do you know them, um, what age are they, uh, how are they dressed, all those uh, other various aspects. And once you start to uh, be involved with the, uh, the sense uh, uh, contact in that way, then, of course, there is a lot more uh, activity that is uh, triggered off in the mind, and that's what we're going to uh, look at next. So the first part of the uh, restraint of the senses is to do with particularly how we deal with the objects in the environment. When we make contact at the sense door, we know that that contact is arising, we know that there is sense consciousness and we don't pay attention, we don't get involved, we don't elaborate on the object in the environment. Are there any questions about that? <coughs> so the next 
stage that we're going to look at is the uh, impact that that has on the internal environment. Now, Ananda, how is there the supreme development of the faculties in the Noble One's discipline? Here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, there has arisen in me what is agreeable, there has arisen what is disagreeable, there has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable. So with mindfulness, one recognizes the internal reaction. And we're going to look at this, the way that the Buddha uh, describes this internal reaction in uh, just a moment. But the difference that we're seeing now is that the emphasis is on the internal reaction. This is where we're moving from the object in the environment to what it produces inside. And with mindfulness only established, can we know that this is taking place? So first of all, there has arisen in me what is agreeable, there has arisen what is disagreeable, there has arisen what is both agreeable and disagreeable. And then with insight, but that is conditioned, gross, dependently arisen. And this is peaceful, this is sublime, this is equanimity. That is equanimity. So first of all, one recognises that the internal reaction has a, a quality of either being pleasant or unpleasant, and it has sometimes neither unpleasant or uh, pleasant. But it is something that stirs the mind and that the true peace is to be found in equanimity when the mind comes in contact with objects but is not stirred. And it's quite interesting to note that the equanimity is preferable even to the agreeable stirrings that take place. Now I'd like to just uh, look in more detail at what those stirrings are and to see in what sense we are stirred by those contacts. And I'm going to quote from uh, the Sutta number 18 of the uh, Majjhimanikaya, the Honeyball Ball Sutta, in which uh, the Buddha, I'm just going to extract certain verses from this Sutta to help you us to realise what happens when an object comes in contact uh, with the sense basis, what happens inside. So in brief, what happens is, because, this is the Buddha speaking, because as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, of the underlying tendency to aversion, of the underlying tendency to views, of the underlying tendency to doubt, of the underlying tendency to conceit, of the underlying tendency to desire for being, of the underlying tendency to ignorance. 
This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice and false speech. Here these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. So when perceptions beset and notions tinged uh, with uh, liking, delighting, beset a person through that uh, contact through the senses, then all of these other things are fed. That is delight and welcome. When the contact is delighted in and welcomed, then the underlying tendencies to lust, to aversion, to views, to doubt, to conceit, to desire for being, ignorance, and also the behaviour that comes from it, the speech and the action to uh, obtain those things. Now that's the overview of what the Buddha was saying. Now the Buddha, uh, further on, um, one of the Buddha's disciples uh, elaborates on what the Buddha was pointing to. And I'll just read that to you so that we can see what we... uh, are looking at. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one mentally has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person with respect to the past, future and present forms cognizable through the eye. So basically what we're seeing here is this description of when a contact takes place, then there is the feeling pleasant, unpleasant, or neither unpleasant or pleasant. There is the perception of that object and that always has the past in it. It's the memory of that object, the uh, inferences about that object based on past experience of that object, likewise the feeling that arises. And what one feels, one perceives, what one perceives, one feels, they're conjoined, they can't be separated, when the sense contact takes place. And then because of that feeling that's produced and because of the delight which welcomes the feeling or which doesn't delight in it because it's unpleasant, then the mental proliferation arises to try to uh, get that thing, if it's pleasant, to make it last, to make it continue, to get another one to uh, avoid, get away from something that produces an unpleasant feeling, uh, to uh, avoid it in the future, to uh, try to get it in the future, and also to look back into the past and compare the future, the present, with the future, the past experiences of this object. And so it's through this coming in contact through the senses that this whole... Uh, process is set in motion. And so the first uh, stage in this uh, training the mind in terms of uh, the sense restraint is to not start to uh, indulge in uh, looking at the signs and features, elaborating on the uh, 
uh, object itself. But the second stage, which the Buddha is talking about as the development of the faculties, is to be aware of that internal process that is set in motion once there is sense contact. And to be aware of the pleasant feeling as it's arising, or the unpleasant feeling, or the uh, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that feeling will be accompanied by perception. It won't be just an isolated thing. It will also, uh, if not, uh, if we don't stop at that point with mindfulness, if we don't stop at that point, then it's a natural process that we go on to mental proliferation. And so what I'm trying to point out is that this is uh, why we need to develop this faculty to be able to be mindful at the sense door, to guard the senses, because once we indulge in that uh, looking around, taking notice of, getting into in more detail, then it's very uh, much harder to stop the uh, next chain of uh, the process happening, which is that one starts to uh, indulge in mental proliferation about those objects. And then the mental proliferation, which one indulges in, becomes a new cause, creating more effects. So as one thinks about this thing that one is delighting in, as one uh, thinks about how one can get it, then that is the cause for the production of new pleasant or unpleasant feeling, which feeds again, as I said in the uh, first quote from the Honey Bull Sutta, the underlying tendency to lust, to aversion, to uh, uh, conceit, to all of the uh, grosser or more, more uh, uh, if you like, um, the, the latent tendencies which are always underlying the uh, process that we're engaged in, that is of uh, the internal reaction uh, to the external environment. Are there any questions about this? Is it clear what I'm, the point I'm trying to, to make? Yes. Yes. In the absence of clear action, you are by default going down that way of looking for craving something Yes. The, the question is that that's unconscious and it's um, happening uh, with without mindfulness there is just following uh, conditioning and ha habit patterns. That's true. That's what's, what is the um, result that uh, it's not only uh, attending to something in the present and then that whole process happening about the object that's arising at the, the uh, sense door at this moment, but it is feeding all of those underlying tendencies which um, are just getting stronger because we are continually feeding them, whether it's with like or dislike. And so what we are trying to do is to establish mindfulness at the sense doors, but mindfulness that knows also what is produced internally as a result of the sense contacts. And because we can't stop the uh, sense contacts happening, 
we have to learn to attend to them wisely, mindfully, when they arise, so that we don't go down the path of feeding those uh, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the thing to understand is that those feelings will arise automatically. They are old karma. They are dependent on what we've experienced with that object or that situation in the past, and they will arise automatically. It's not that we can't stop the arising of them, the quality of them as they arise. That's why it's so important that we have to be present to be aware of them and to not act on them in the habitual way. So the, the, both the feeling and the perception will be old karmic um, forces. It's what we do with it in the present and where, why we need to establish mindfulness in the present that is so important. Yes, yes. Well, they will come up. At that point, willpower can't stop them coming up. But at the point of not acting on them in the present moment, not allowing them to be the basis of the decisions you make in the present moment, that's where willpower can um, be activated. And that's what this actually comes on to talk about now, that we can, uh, through mindfulness and being aware, cut through this process at that point. Having the contact happen, having been aware of the internal reaction, that's the point that we can use our willpower to change the direction that we go in. And that's what this is actually, this development of the faculties is about. Now just to change the will, change it according to willpower saying, oh no, is impossible because what we understand from the way the mind works is that we have to replace what is unskillful with something that is skillful. Otherwise, the payoff just won't be there. If we just fight the fact that uh, we're not going to do it, we might be able to grit our teeth and resist in one occasion, but it won't actually uh, be something that uh, we can easily uh, Institute on a permanent basis. So what the Buddha is now going on to talk about is uh, to use insight at that point. Now this is uh, actually a very developed form of practice to be able to catch the contact and also catch the internal reaction and then to be able to put uh, insight into play right at that moment. And so it's very important that we understand just what we're working with, that there is this uh, uh, delight in the mind which welcomes these contacts. That's why it's so difficult to even do the initial stage of guarding the senses because we delight in these contacts. We uh, uh, welcome these contacts. We pursue these contacts. And so it's part of the... Uh, the practice which supports us being able to guard the senses is to see the uh, the craving underlying the fact that we're constantly drawn out 
that we're constantly pursuing sense contact and to see that craving uh, brings us into suffering again and again and again. Um, to see that the, the danger that we face is not in the objects themselves but in the mind itself. And perhaps it's uh, useful just to, for those of you who didn't hear the um, the teaching on Friday night, to just remind you of this sutta in uh, the Sangyuta Nikaya, um, which is a conversation between Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Maha Kotita, in which Venerable Maha Kotita asks Venerable Sariputta, now tell me, friend Sariputta, is the eye the fetter of forms? Are our forms the fetter of the eye? Is the ear, is the nose, is the tongue, is the body, is the intellect the fetter of, the, of ideas, or ideas the fetter of the intellect? No, my friend, the eye is not the fetter of forms, nor are forms the fetter of the eye. Whatever desire and passion arises in dependence on the two of them, that is the fetter there. Suppose that a black ox and a white ox were joined with a single collar or yoke. If someone were to say the black ox is the fetter of the white ox or the white ox is the fetter of the black, speaking this way, would he be speaking rightly? No, my friend, the black ox is not the fetter of the white ox, nor is the white ox the fetter of the black. The single collar or yoke by which they are joined, that is the fetter there. In the same way, the eye is not the fetter of forms, nor are forms the fetter of the eye. Whatever desire and passion arise in dependence on the two of them, that is the fetter there. And through this line of reasoning, one may know how the eye is not the fetter of, the form, of forms, nor are forms the fetter of the eye. But whatever desire and passion arise in dependence on the two of them, that is the fetter there. There is an eye in the Blessed One. The Blessed One sees forms with the eye. There is no desire or passion in the Blessed One. The Blessed One is well released in mind. And this was the uh, original teaching on the quality of the Buddha as being well released in mind, that he's not he is like us, a human being who has eyes, who has ears, who has a nose, all of the sense bases, and he sees objects and he hears objects, but he isn't fettered to those objects because there's no desire and passion in the mind. So when these pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings are produced through contact, that is the external environment, affecting the internal environment, then it's that point that we have to abandon passion and uh, desire for this pleasant feeling. To realise that it's actually not the object that we have to uh, work with, it's the feeling that that object produces within us is where the desire arises the uh, wish to have it or the wish to get rid of it. And so in this particular teaching on the development of the faculties, when one knows that this feeling has been produced, one 
at that moment uses insight to to remind oneself that this feeling is conditioned, gross, dependently arisen, that is, that it is uh, subject to conditions, it is uncertain, it is uh, not something that one can call one's own, that's not something that one can be uh, sure about, that one can guarantee. And in this way, one not only starts to develop insight into the nature of this feeling, but one also breaks the train of uh, habitual reaction, which takes this feeling to be mine, to be me, to be something that one should pursue, that feeds our craving. It gives, if you like, the space to let off steam without pursuing the habitual pattern, without the habitual pattern just taking over. And so through this contemplation that it is conditioned, gross and dependently arisen, then one realises this is peaceful, this is sublime, that is equanimity. And this is the equanimity which knows this feeling to be something which is temporary, uncertain, doesn't belong to me and therefore not worth playing around with, not worth getting involved with. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose and both agreeable and disagreeable that arose cease in him and equanimity is established. So if we just look at the note again, 1354. This equanimity, and these are the... um, uh, The commentaries, that's it. The commentaries uh, explanation that this equanimity is the equanimity of insight. It's not the equanimity of, uh, that's based on uh, uh, the Brahma Viharas or the, the equanimity that's a, a, a kind of uh, moral disposition, but it is the equanimity that's based on seeing the true nature of these feelings when they arise. And the bhikkhu does not allow his mind to be overcome by lust, hate or delusion, but comprehends the object and sets up insight in the neutral state. So this is knowing the quality of the feelings. It's not suppressing. It's not pushing them away. It's allowing them to... uh, live out their time, and what one sees is that they are impermanent. This is actually quite a crucial point because very often when we have unwanted feelings arising, triggered by uh, being exposed again to either pleasant or unpleasant stimuli, we very often try to fight against those feelings that are produced. We uh, actually uh, feed them by trying to either run away from them or to suppress them. And with insight practice, what we're trying to uh, develop as an experience is that these feelings, whether they're very pleasant or very unpleasant, 
have the nature to arise, stay for a while and pass away. And when we can see that they are impermanent, that they don't last, that they don't, uh, they aren't ultimately uh, who we are, they're not here forever. It's when we see their true nature that we have uh, uh, the ability to bear with them. We're not fighting with them anymore. This is actually a very crucial point. If we fight with them, the very resistance in the mind adds to them, gives them more strength. And so to be able to um, observe them in their arising, in their staying, in their passing away, is a crucial part of this practice. Now obviously to have the mind uh, strong enough to be able to do that, to be able to bear with a feeling which uh, arises through contact, which is not in our control, that is pleasant or unpleasant, without taking it to be something that we need to do something about, that becomes important because it's present. Here it is again. To be able to bear with it and to uh, observe its arising and passing away, we need to have a mind that's strong and stable. And this is the mind that we uh, produce through all of the practice that we do. And so uh, both sila is very important to give the mind that uh, strength to be able to... uh, uh, hold things without being uh, very fragile, very uh, uh, precious about things. Um, the con- the uh, work that we do in developing the mind in meditation, particularly when we cultivate the wholesome and make the mind more buoyant and strong through those uh, positive emotions like the Brahma-viharas, um, making the mind... Uh, uh, firm through the concentration practices such as the concentration on the breath, which allows us to uh, stay as a witness to what arises and passes away in the mind as we're watching the breath. All of these practices contribute to the ability to stay with that feeling as it arises, as it abides and as it passes away. And to be able to do that, to actually see for yourself that this feeling is impermanent, that it is conditioned, that it is not self, this is crucial to be able to continue with this practice. If we don't see that, then we just fight against the feelings. We take a moralistic attitude. I shouldn't have this again. I I know I shouldn't feel this way. We don't understand the process that these things are conditioned, that they come into being through causes and conditions and they are impermanent. They are not who we are. So just as a person with good sight, having opened his eyes might shut them or having shut his eyes might open them, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called the noble one's discipline. In sorry, this is called in the noble one's discipline the supreme development of the faculties regarding forms cognizable by the eye. 
And then the Buddha goes on to talk about this in relation to all of the uh, forms. Again, Ananda, when a bhikkhu hears a sound with the ear, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, and equanimity is established. Just as strong as a strong man might easily snap his fingers, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called the noble one's in the noble one's discipline the supreme development of the faculties regarding sounds cognizable by the ear. Again, Ananda, when a bhikkhu smells an odour with the nose, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, and equanimity is established, just as raindrops on a slightly sloping lotus leaf roll off and do not remain there. So too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called in the noble one's discipline the supreme development of the faculties regarding odours cognizable by the nose. Again, Ananda, when a bhikkhu tastes a flavour with the tongue, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, and equanimity is established, just as a strong man might easily spit out a ball of spittle collected on the tip of his tongue, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called the noble one's discipline, in the noble one's discipline, the supreme development of the faculties regarding flavours cognizable by the tongue. Again, Ananda, when a bhikkhu touches a tangible with the body, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, and equanimity is established, just as a strong person might extend his flexed arm or flex his extended arm, so too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called in the noble one's discipline the supreme development of the faculties regarding tangibles cognizable by the body. Again, Ananda, when a bhikkhu cognizes a mind object with the mind, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus, and equanimity is established. Just as if a man were to let two or three drops of water fall onto an iron plate heated for a whole day, the falling of the drops might be slow, but they would quickly vaporize and vanish. So too concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, 
and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, and equanimity is established. This is called in the noble one's discipline the supreme development of the faculties regarding ideas cognizable by the mind. So this is uh, what is commonly called insight practice. This is uh, an explanation of the uh, next step on uh, the road to establishing mindfulness at the sense doors, to being aware of contacts in the environment, and then to have that internal mindfulness well established so one sees what is happening internally, one experiences it, the feelings, the perceptions, one it starts to notice the mental proliferation that uh, arises dependent on that contact. And then with uh, wisdom, one starts to see that whatever has been uh, produced, whatever is arising, is conditioned, gross, and dependently arisen. And that one sees this is peaceful, this is sublime, that is equanimity. So if you think about equanimity as being like having the car in neutral, that you're not going anywhere, the engine's switched on, but you're not going backwards and you're not going forwards, you're just, uh, the, the motor's there, you know what's uh, happening, but you're not moving off your spot. And again, unless we have cultivated a sense of contentment, inner peace, in a happiness, then it will be very difficult to be equanimous at that moment because the lure of the senses, the lure of the feeling that is produced will pull us to act, to proliferate, to elaborate, to pursue that feeling. And so, again, when we are thinking about doing any of these practices, although they might seem straightforward and quite uh, simple, all the practice that we do is present in that moment to allow the mind to be content without pursuing what it's just come in contact with. And remembering that it's not the object that we're talking about, it's the feeling that that object produces that is the real trigger for our activity, for the mental the verbal and the physical proliferation on that contact. And this again is a very important insight. It is not the object. It is the way it makes us feel. And if the way it makes us feel is an improvement on how we feel in the moment, then we're going to pursue it. If we don't have already established a sense of inner peace, a sense of inner ease, uh, a sense of uh, contentment, then when that feeling is produced through contact, then we're going to be uh, stimulated to uh, pursue that object as a way of uh, reinforcing, uh, repeating that feeling that has uh, come into being. So whatever we do in our path of practice to produce contentment, and again, it's not just one thing, it's the whole of the path, sila, samadhi, panya. And we can see how in just this sutta, the Buddha is saying, if you use insight, then you will also uh, 
the punya aspect of the path. This is conditioned, gross, and dependently arisen. It's not reliable. It's uncertain. We might give up what we've got, so we've we've got a sense of contentment or we've got a sense of uh, being okay at ease, and then a feeling is produced, a pleasant feeling, and we let go of what we've got to pursue something that seems better. And because it's... Uh, uncertain it may not actually produce anything better than we've already got it may uh, detract from what we've already got so with insight even we can start to uh, challenge the tendency to follow to pursue the pleasant and to run away from the unpleasant if we recognize that this unpleasant feeling which has come which we may consider to be a disturbance is only temporary and we can hold to a sense of ease, a sense of ease that isn't about shutting out the unpleasant but is making room for even the unpleasant to be there without unsettling the mind because we understand these things will come and go but they don't have to uh, disturb us, make us move. And so when we cultivate particularly uh, the samatha practices, the uh, things like the Brahma Viharas particularly, then we will feel uh, sufficiently um, expansive and uh, mellow and uh, inflated, if you like, um, not to be touched by unpleasant... Um, we touch by unpleasant feelings, but they don't uh, take over the mind and remain. They just... Uh, uh, another uh, feeling which is passing through. And so all the practice that we do helps us to get to the point where we can uh, be with that uh, feeling, either pleasant or unpleasant, without losing the balance of the mind and without then following it into mental, verbal and uh, physical uh, action, proliferation, based on the feeling that's been produced. Any questions on this? Yes. Yes. So the question, and always managed to put it in nice words for me. Thank you. Emotional buoyancy is one way of, uh, and it's not really either or because these two conditions support each other. The emotional buoyancy gives us enough time to do the uh, reflection that this is the cognitive processing of it that says that this is impermanent, that is not uh, worth pursuing. If we don't have that emotional buoyancy, then we just uh, react on a hair trigger to whatever comes in and out. It's like we don't have any uh, shock absorbers in the system. And without the shock absorbers, we don't have the time 
that it takes to quickly um, change our perception of this thing. And we are working with perception here because if we contact an, an object that produces a pleasant feeling, then our perception of that object is that it's a, a, an object with all the attributes that we like. Uh, when we change it to um, uh, a different perception, then we start to see it as not ha being so wonderful. And actually, this is the next phase of this um, process, which we'll just go into now. The um, ability of the disciple to be able to change the way that we perceive the actual object to reflect the qualities of that object which are more in accordance with reality and truth. So if we go over the page to verse 10. And how, Ananda, is one a disciple in higher training, one who has entered upon the way? And the disciple in higher training is the saker, that is someone who has at least stream-winning or uh, beyond, stream-winning uh, once returning or non-returning, that has uh, seen for themselves the truth of uh, seeing through the, the sense of self as being uh, something which is solid, which is manipulating and in control of experience, seeing that conditionality is true. This is the disciple in higher training, one who has entered upon the way. Here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an odour with the nose, tastes a flavour with the tongue, touches a tangible with the body, cognises a mind object with the mind, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He is ashamed, humiliated and disgusted by that by the agreeable that arose, by the disagreeable that arose, and by both the agreeable and disagreeable that arose. So in here, please take note that we're not distinguishing between the disagreeable and the agreeable and saying that the agreeable isn't um, uh, bad or uh, is something to uh, be ashamed about and the disagreeable isn't. What uh, these very strong words are pointing to is that one has seen through the nature of these feelings, that one, um, the words ashamed, humiliated and disgusted may, um, in the context of our uh, modern uh, way of looking at things and our uh, trying not to um, hurt our self-esteem or to... Uh, put forward the perception of ourselves as not being good enough or whatever, we may find the words ashamed, humiliated and disgusted as uh, uh, something that we don't like. But remembering that this is a disciple in higher training who no longer identifies those feelings as being who they are. They're not talking about me being I'm humiliated by myself, I'm disgusted with myself. I uh, uh, think that that's, uh, I'm terrible. It's the actual feeling that arises, and this is a very important distinction. We're not talking about ourselves as bad because we have that, and this is what we often hear when we're talking about our practice. I shouldn't feel that. I know I should be further along than that. I feel terrible because uh, I felt like that again. So the disciple in higher training sees these feelings, which are so can be so enticing as... Uh, ashamed, humiliated, disgusted by them, but not seeing them as his self or herself. 
Let me just look at the. He's still prone to subtle states of liking, aversion, and dull indifference. He experiences these as impediments to his progress and thus becomes ashamed, humiliated, and disgusted by him. That is the um, note in the back. But I would uh, encourage you to look on this as the person with wisdom who isn't identifying those things as being who they are. So it's not that they are terrible for having them, but that these uh, states which arise and to recognize that one is still being uh, subject to one's old conditioning that one's old uh, feelings, one's old perceptions are rising because of past karma. One sees this and one sees that if uh, one wants to continue to progress, that this is where one has to work to let go of identification with these feelings as they arise. And And now we go on to verse 11. And how Ananda is a noble one with developed faculties... And this is where we see the uh, the translation of the developed faculties is the Arya, Bhav It Indriya, the Arahat. How is one an an enlightened one? Here, Ananda, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, hears a sound with the ear, smells an t- odor with the nose, tastes a flavor with the tongue, touches a tangible with the body cognizes a mind object with the mind there arises in him what is agreeable there arises what is disagreeable there arises both is what both what agreeable and disagreeable and it's uh, interesting to look at the note here 1359 since the arahant has eradicated all the defilements along with their underlying tendencies And if you remember, what we saw about in the beginning was that these sense contacts feed the underlying tendencies. When there's light in them, when there's pursuing them, the underlying tendency to lust, the underlying tendency to uh, anger or hatred when it's an unpleasant contact, the underlying tendency to conceit is fed. But since the arahat has eradicated all defilements along with their underlying tendencies, In this passage, the three terms, the agreeable, disagreeable, and neither agreeable or disagreeable, must be understood simply as the feelings that arise through contact with sense objects and not as the subtle traces of liking, aversion, and indifference relevant to the preceding passage. So for one still in training, there is still this subtle liking or disliking of what comes along. But for the arahat, there is simply the feeling, which if you touch, you get a feeling. It's just a feeling. If there's a sound, there's a vibration. It just produces a feeling because of that contact. So it's no longer looking at things as pleasant, unpleasant, or uh, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. If he should wish, and this is the... uh, the Arya Idi, this is called, the ability that the um, enlightened ones have. May I abide perceiving the repulsive, the, sorry, may I abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. He abides perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. If he should wish, may I abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. He abides perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. If he should wish, may I abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive and the unrepulsive. He abides perceiving the unrepulsive in that. 
If he should wish, may I abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive and the repulsive, he abides perceiving the repulsive in that. If he should wish, may I avoiding both the repulsive and the unrepulsive, abide in equanimity, mindful and fully aware, he abides in equanimity toward that mindful and fully aware. That is how one is noble, a noble one with developed faculties. And uh, this is again interesting just to uh, note that now we go back to the object, it's the external object. The enlightened one does not have anything that is triggered internally in terms of likes and dislikes. That is the uh, quote that I read you about the ox, the white ox and the black ox and that the Buddha has eyes, the Buddha has ears, the Buddha has nose, but he doesn't have those internal conflicts, those passions. That's why he's arahang. And every enlightened being is the same. There is no longer those internal conflicts. So in this last um, expression, um, the the, um, development of the uh, faculties in one uh, with developed faculties who's enlightened, we go back to the object externally. We've moved from, first of all, the uh, beginning stage where we have the Indriya Sangwara, which is part of the gradual training of the unenlightened uh, person who is trying not to watch the features and the details of the objects and to withdraw from those objects. Then we have the uh, training which is to recognize the internal reactions that are produced, the feelings and perceptions, to notice whether they're pleasant or unpleasant and or not neither pleasant nor unpleasant and how they stir the mind and lead on to proliferation, mental, verbal, physical. And that all of that uh, internal reaction then feeds the underlying tendencies. Then we have moved on to the disciple in higher training who is able to be more equanimous with those uh, reactions when they come up, no longer identifying with them but still seeing them because of the past karma fruiting as something that needs to be dealt with. So for the uh, disciple who hasn't become at least a stream winner, when those... uh, Reactions are triggered. There's the recognition of those reactions and the recognition that whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's still gross, conditioned, it's impermanent, it's unsure. And so moving to equanimity. For the uh, disciple in higher training who has seen through the uh, personality view and the idea of self, there is no more identification with those feelings but still has to be the establishment of equanimity towards them. And then there is the enlightened one with developed faculties who is now no longer internally triggered and is able to therefore perceive the external object however they wish to perceive it to perceive the repulsive in the unrepulsive, to perceive the unrepulsive in the repulsive. So to see vomit as something beautiful, for example, to just change the perception of that through uh, 
the movement of the mind through that perception to see what we would call the most beautiful flower, for example, something that is beautiful, and to see it as an object that is not worth uh, uh, calling beautiful. And it's very interesting to go back to the co- to the notes in the back, and we'll see how this takes place. Note one three six six zero. In the uh, Abhidharma, this practice is the noble supernormal power or the Arya Idi, and it ex- is explained as thus: to abide perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. One pervades a repulsive being with loving kindness. So something that one sees as repulsive, one pervades that uh, object with loving kindness and changes the perception of it. One pervades, or one pervades a repulsive being with loving kindness. So that's a repulsive being. So that is a person, an, a living thing that one sees as repulsive. Or one attends to a repulsive object, either animate or inanimate. So it may be uh, a person, but uh, also inanimate objects, as a mere assemblage of impersonal elements. So that one sees it not as a thing, not as a solid, but as made up of impersonal elements. So if it's a repulsive object, Object. So, for example, some people hate caterpillars, and when they look at it, they see that caterpillar as being repulsive. And so then you start to take that caterpillar apart and see it's just got hairs on it. It's just got uh, a colour. It's just got a particular kind of uh, feeling to it. Where is the repulsion in any of those individual things? And so one starts to take it apart and see that it's a construct caterpillar. It's made up of all these different things, and uh, it's not uh, hasn't got this quality of repulsiveness. It's something that we add to it. To abide perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive, one pervades a sensually attractive person with the idea of foulness of the body. And so this is the idea of not just looking at the outer shell and thinking that uh, they've got beautiful teeth or they've got beautiful skin or they've got beautiful hair, but thinking that inside there's probably undigested food, there's bile, there's feces, there's urine, all of those things are in there. Um, uh, and we're just looking at the surface, which has this appearance of being uh, beautiful and attractive. Or one attends to an attractive object, either animate or inanimate, as impermanent. So we very often get engrossed in things and think, wouldn't it be lovely to have that? I'd like to have that. I need to have that. And then we think, well, it's going to wear out soon. It's going to break up. It's going to uh, get used up. It's going to lose its uh, sheen. It's not going to work forever. So in that way, we can uh, make that thing no longer so attractive. The third and fourth methods involve the application of the first and second contemplations to both repulsive and unrepulsive objects without discrimination. So that is seeing uh, the repulsive being with loving kindness and the repulsive object as a mere assemblage of impersonal elements. The fifth method involves the avoidance of joy and sorrow in response to the six sense objects, thus enabling one to abide in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. 
And then it goes on to say, although this fivefold contemplation is ascribed to the Arahant as a powerful power perfectly under his control, elsewhere the Buddha teaches it to bhikkhus still in training as a way to overcome the three unwholesome roots. So having read this, you can see if you can use this kind of uh, uh, approach to things to see if you can uh, pervade uh, a repulsive uh, being, someone that you don't like or something that you don't like with loving kindness and start to see that thing quite differently. And if you pervade uh, any being with loving kindness, you're changing you will subtly change your perception of that being. So whether you're actually directly in contact with them or whether you visualize them, whether you uh, think about them, if you uh, pervade them with loving kindness again and again, when you actually come in contact with them, you'll be surprised that you have changed your perception. And that is because you have been conditioning the mind in a different way. And as we said in the beginning, what comes up with that pleasant or unpleasant feeling is old karma fruiting. And you've made new karma by pervading that thing with loving kindness. So the uh, new karma comes up uh, depending on how strong it is, uh, also with uh, affecting the old karma. So the old karma may arise but not be so strong or not uh, last so long. When the uh, initial reaction to this thing uh, arises, it will be tempered by the new karma that you've made through pervading it with loving kindness. So remembering that these arahats are no longer um, uh, looking on the uh, objects in the same way. They are uh, able to perceive objects as impermanent, conditioned, not self. They're not attending to them as uh, a source of uh, happiness. Uh, Their disintegration is not a source of suffering. And so when they attend to the objects of the senses, they're attending to them in quite a different way from uh, the way that we, with ordinary minds, attend to things. So this is how one is a noble one with developed faculties. So Ananda, the supreme development of the faculties in the noble one's discipline has been taught by me. The disciple in higher training who has entered upon the way has been taught by me. And the noble one with developed faculties has been taught by me. What should be done for his disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them? That I have done for you, Ananda. These are the roots of the trees, these empty huts. Meditate, Ananda. Do not delay, or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So we've moved right from the beginning of this sutta where the uh, Brahman teacher was saying that if you want to develop this um, uh guarding of the faculties then you just don't see things you just don't hear things and the buddha says well that's silly if you were blind then you've got developed faculties if you were deaf you've got developed faculties and the buddha goes on to show that you have to develop faculties uh, understanding that there is always going to be contact through the senses with the external world and it's not 
the sense base and it's not the objects uh, where the uh, attachment lies. The attachment lies in the mind itself. And so it's in the mind that we have to do this work. Once we have uh, eradicated all defilements and all underlying tendencies, then it's possible to uh, even change the way that we perceive objects in the external world. But that's a freedom that comes through uh, the complete uprooting of uh, attachment, conceit, the uh, identification with those objects or those experiences as something that is uh, fundamentally uh, who we are, that sense of self. So are there any questions or comments? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a very good question. The question is about if you follow this um, through with um, trying to dampen down one's joy and trying to abide in equanimity, that you run the risk of uh, going over the edge into aversion and also um, becoming clinically depressed and disconnected from uh, your experience. And uh, what would... uh, What words can you say about that? So, yes, this is something that we have to uh, uh, recognize and that's why we have to take the whole of the path of practice um, into uh, consideration because, in fact, one of the things that the Buddha emphasizes again and again is taking uh, delight in goodness and taking delight in uh, wholesomeness and that what we that delight in wholesomeness and goodness allows us to do is to develop the path so that we can actually start to enjoy a happiness which is uh, not dependent on uh, sensuality but is dependent on the uh, joy that arises from spiritual practice and that that is something that arise, that develops naturally when you take the whole path into consideration. And that's, um, I think, where I always come back to, that any of these uh, practices need to be seen in the context of the whole of the path, the development of um, sila, uh, the keeping of precepts, the uh, cultivation of, deliberate cultivation of wholesome states uh, and the feeling of ease that comes from it, the blameless bliss that comes from it. These are experiences which the Buddha says to make much of and to develop. There are sources of joy and happiness that are essential to uh, the path because they energize and inspire the mind. Uh, So with these practices, they need to be taken in context. 
And that's why it's, uh, I guess, very important to uh, have uh, teachers and to be able to um, discuss uh, what one should be doing in one's practice. And also when one starts to meditate, there is... uh, uh Brahm particularly emphasises this, is not to try to cultivate equanimity too quickly, but to make much of uh, the delight that one finds in meditation, any kind of uh, peacefulness that one finds, any kind of... Uh, joy that arises, to make much of that and to delight in it, to enjoy it, to actually enjoy the experience of practicing, enjoy the experience of meditating and to make much of that, not to try to become equanimous. And so this is a gradual practice and as I said at the beginning, the first part of the gradual training is the restraint of the senses. And when the Buddha was talking about this path of practice, uh, he would introduce the, the um, guarding of the senses after uh, he talked about morality, virtue, and after he could see that the disciple was undertaking the training, was wanting to undertake the training, was starting to uh, keep the precepts and try to cultivate that inner happiness. Then he would introduce the development of uh, of the faculties. So again, it has to be in context. If you just take one thing out of the path, then you can misunderstand it. I don't know whether that answers people's questions. If you have any, it's a very good question actually that's been asked. And so if people have any queries about that, please. Uh, yes, Does anyone have any? Yes. 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 Um, <laughs> I think um, I can only give a suggestion that if you have been listening to that person for five years um, then and you do have concern for their well-being, that then it's appropriate to say, can I just mention what I would like to, what I feel about this and mention that this person is suffering and they're continuing their suffering now. They can't change what has happened in the past, but their suffering isn't actually helping the person who died. And so if they can now start to... Uh, change their uh, reaction to the fact that they're obviously very sorry that the person suffered, that the person didn't perhaps get uh, the best treatment that they could have. Um, If they maybe have some guilt about that, they maybe feel they didn't do um, the best by that person. So uh, perhaps to um, just put that aside at the moment, but to say now... We couldn't do any more to help that person at that time, but what can we do now? And this is one of the things that I've found very useful, is at that moment 
to turn it around and wish for that person may they always have all the things that they didn't have at that time wherever they're rebuilt born if they're a christian and they think well they've gone to heaven they can rejoice in the fact that their suffering is over and now they're in heaven if they don't uh, have a sense of wherever they've gone then let's think about the things that we would like them to uh, have now wherever they are so people around them who will always be uh, uh, able to attend to their needs and to turn it around to the things that she would like that person to have and say, now this is the practice I found really helpful when I'm sorry for what happened and there's nothing I can do to change it. Now to wish that person that they may in the future, wherever they are, and the future is from right this next moment, have all those things. And so perhaps you could ask her to think about those things and put it in the positive. It might be something that you do with her. You know, she won't... Because of the old karma, this is a habit pattern. You know, this leads on to that leads on. So you're changing the habit pattern and you're saying I understand that you feel so sad but I understand also that your suffering is not helping him and it's not uh, helping you either so can I just share what I found useful because I'm also would like to help you through this however it seems to but then turning it around to those things and part of the value of this kind of uh, wishing, sharing merits and wishing someone well is because it does cut through the train of thought. It gives um, another something to go into the mind. You can't just say, stop thinking that. You have to put something else in there. So you give something positive and specifically around the things that that person is feeling that they, the, their loved one missed out on at that time. No, that just simply means that one is um, uh, maintaining that uh, practice, that one is, uh, at when things uh, arise at the sense doors, that one is no longer um, being entranced with their, the features or the signs of that object. One is simply um, aware of a sense contact and one may be, it may be necessary um, to take notice of that object uh, object but only to the extent necessary to deal with that object so for example if you're crossing the road you need to be aware that there are cars coming and you need to be aware that the cars are coming at a certain pace at a certain speed and you need to be aware of your environment to know when you how fast you should walk to get across the road but you don't get involved in the working out what kind of cars, what make of cars, uh, who's in the car, uh, whether it's they're good people in the car or whether that, those sorts of elaborations. If you're just knowing the object as much as necessary to deal with that object and not getting um, entranced by it or repelled by it, then that's Indriya Sangwara. Indriya Sangwara Sila is to be able to maintain that relation to the object. Um, yes, and you avoid one of avoiding is one of the ways that you train. Um, so, by keeping the eyes down, for example, you avoid contact with um, uh, visual objects. But 
the problem is that we have ears that hear, whether we uh, uh, want to or not. Um, when we're walking, where there's a touch contacts happening, whether we uh, like them or not. Uh, especially these are things which in training as a monk or a nun, you train to walk on arms round, for example, with the eyes down and uh, just focusing on the bowl or focusing on walking. But there are many things that you can't um, prevent coming in contact with. So odours, for example, if you're receiving arms food. So the point of this is that um, you can't avoid those contacts. So as much as possible, you avoid the resort, unsuitable resort. So you avoid going to places where you're likely to come in contact with um, sense objects which stimulate the mind. And in one of the suttas which um, elaborates on this practice, the Buddha talks about how a monk specifically in this one, it talks about a monk whose senses are unguarded uh, and who uses wrong resort. He goes to the village at the wrong time of day when he's likely to see people bathing at the well and see women who are half naked or um, not through any um, desire to entice the monk but simply because it's the time for bathing. And so he goes to the uh, village at the wrong time and his senses are unguarded, and because of the contact that he has with that visual object, uh, it incites lust in his mind. So going to the village is not necessarily the wrong thing to do at other times or at the right time, which is the time for going on arms round, but it's the wrong going to the place at the wrong time when you're likely to come in contact with things which are um, likely to stimulate uh, the uh, defilements. So being careful where you go, right resort is also the other way of uh, avoiding. Yes, the equanimity is based on insight so that one sees with insight that these objects are produced by causes and conditions, one that they are gross, that is something that they're to do with um, materiality, they're to do with um, the carnal pleasure, if you like, that's the pleasure that's dependent on uh, sense contacts, it's not something that's um, dependent on uh, spiritual happiness. Um, and that they are uncertain because uh, they depend on all of these supporting conditions to arise and that they're not going to stay forever. And so because you see through them with insight, you no longer reach out for them, you no longer grasp at them, there's an equanimity. So that equanimity isn't something that just arises initially. The equanimity arises by repeatedly no longer following the pull or the push, the pull which comes with the pleasant and the push that comes with the unpleasant. So you simply abide knowing that, that knowing that that's been produced within you and you don't feed it. And then eventually you're able to remain equanimous with it. You're never, Although the um, contact takes place and there may be pleasant or unpleasant uh, feeling produced, you simply know that and you are neither pushed nor pulled by it. And then eventually as you um, stop feeding these things, it becomes that they don't even have that pleasant or unpleasant um, uh, feeling with them because you haven't been, your the past karma which eventually is fruiting is based on equanimity. So 
It's like uh, one of the other suttas which is possible I could read if people wanted was the fact that it's like um, when we're children and we go and we play with our toys and we get we love our toys and we get very um, caught up in our toys and if anyone hurts our toys or use our toys without asking or our toys break we get very upset when we're older when we see the same toys maybe we open the cupboard and see our set of toys that we've been keeping uh, in the cupboard since childhood we no longer have the same reaction to them that the feelings we had that were so different when we were young have just fallen away because we haven't been feeding that thing again and again and we may look at them and wonder whatever we saw in them so it's not that they're wrenched from our, our grasp but the feeling the internal feeling is no longer the same so there's the equanimity that comes first of all from just not feeding and then the equanimity that comes because things just don't get um, triggered in us anymore. But it's based on insight. Yes. That citta viveka is uh, where there is this um, solitude or detachment, the physical removing of the mind from uh, the uh, world of the sense objects. And that can be temporary when we just turn our attention inwards and we are not um, uh, being drawn out into the world of uh, the senses. So, for example, the Buddha advocates that we maintain mindfulness on the body. And this is a way of uh, avoiding uh, taking in all the objects that are in the environment around us. Uh, Even when we're walking, even when we're doing things, that we are focusing our attention on the uh, feelings and the feeling of those um, activities internally in our own body that we're not uh, 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 engaging with everything that comes into the the field of our senses and in that sense there is a kind of uh, citta viveka but the true citta viveka comes through deep meditation when the mind uh, withdraws completely from uh, the world of the uh, five senses and Uh, abides uh, only with the mind. So that is in the the jhanas or the absorptions. But even up to uh, the point before that, when we do uh, meditation and the mind becomes settled internally and we're no longer so interested in whatever's going on around us. So there may be a very slight hearing, but we're no longer disturbed by that hearing. There may be feelings in the body, but we're no longer disturbed by those feelings. So there's in a sense, some chitta viveka, but the true chitta viveka happens in the deep meditation. So if there are no more questions, if anything that's not understood, if anyone would like to come up and ask um, individually after the class. Otherwise... uh, Thank you for coming and I hope you've um, gotten something out of the, the sort of reading today.